everybody, and welcome back to Writing the Rapids. This is the show where I, Joe Balecki, talk to writers about writing. Very often, those writers are suggested to me by writers who have previously been on the show, but in the case of this month's guest, I heard him on Wake Island Pod, another great writing interview podcast, and said, nope, I'm gonna get him to on this one because I would like to talk to him. And that's David Leo Rice who is this month's guest. David Leo Rice is a writer and animator from Northampton, Massachusetts, currently living in New York City. He's the author of the novels A Room in Dodge City, A Room in Dodge City Volume 2, Angel House, and The New House, coming in 2022. We will be talking about his debut story collection, Drifter, which is out from 1111 Press, and quite good. If you would like to help me make this with a little bit less financial anxiety, you can contribute to the show and become a Patreon person at patreon.com slash noisemakerjoe. There are three different tiers of payment, $2, $5, and $10, each with their own unique rewards that are all laid out at patreon.com slash noisemakerjoe. Or you can shoot me a one-time donation if the subscription model isn't your thing over at paypal.me slash noisemakerjoe. Now, without further ado, let's get into my conversation with David. I think the first thing I want to do is I, I want to define terms um, for the sake of knowing where, where we're coming from. Um, I initially saw your writing referred to as weird fiction, which I generally, I think the, the sort of general thought for that is like H.P. Lovecraft or Mieville mm-hmm. and, and so on. And then, of course, reading Drifters, you get a little bit of that. Um, but it's, it's not quite so dour, I guess. There's more levity to it. Um, but how would you describe weird fiction with regard to your writing? Yeah, that, that's a really important question. I mean, I think I think it's one influence among a couple. And maybe sometimes a descriptor that I use or that other people use that highlights an aspect of it. But I agree that it's not like the entirety of what I'm interested in, nor uh, like a tradition I'm trying to like situate myself directly within, you know? And, and I think, I mean, in terms of the history of it, I guess conventionally people would say like Lovecraft is like the weird, the classic weird, the original weird with like um, Arthur Machen and some of those like early 20th century people or late 19th. And then someone like China Mievo or Jeff Vandermeer or um, Kelly Link, those people would be like new weird. You know, that's a kind of the same way you'd have like neo-noir, you have a kind of like resurgent movement that's also criticizing the old movement, you know, right. it's trying to like update it for a new time. Um, yeah, so I mean, I, I find that tradition really interesting. One thing that I do think I resonate with from that is this idea of what I've lately heard people calling it and started adopting the term of systems horror, like the idea of thinking of horror being... I mean, systemic, but but being, you know, about these like larger forces that are kind of trans individual so, so that you have individual characters and situations in the story, but they're always kind of examples of something rather than the thing itself, mm. you know, and that I think does come from the weird and just comes from culture and history and politics, you know, it's like a way of lo- looking at and religion, I suppose, right, a way of looking at what happens in the world as you know, maybe it's even like Plato's cave of just like a shadow of something else, you know, but that idea I think really interests me, especially in this moment in history when we have, you know, environmental systems, political systems, economic systems, and systems of of art and language sort of clashing and becoming, becoming visible in a way that I don't know if they were as much when I was growing up, you know, I feel like that's something I had become aware of over say the 10 years when I was working on, on this book and, and on other books. So that aspect of, you know, the weird being almost the opposite, like if you think of the weird as a kind of horror, which you don't have to, but if you, if you go there, um, it's sort of the opposite of like a slasher story. You know, so if you think of a, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's like, you know, maybe it's an example of something, but it's presented as like, this is the thing that happened, Mm -hmm. right? This is the event and the people who did it are the people that you're watching, you know, which is one approach. But I think the weird approach or the like systems approach is kind of the opposite that like everything is only an approximation or like you can never get at the thing itself. You can only get at perhaps like a low level representative of it. Mm. And those are even on the level of character too. Those are the types of characters that I gravitate to is characters who are 
either act really are passive or who are kind of active but are like motivated by a will that they don't really understand and can't can't fully control yeah yeah that enlightens an awful lot of what i think about when i think about these stories because there is a kind of a lot of that just kind of like being dragged around <laughs> you know egon's yeah. parents is a good example of that like you know the the inciting incident like you're not quite sure why he he steers the car the way he steers the car and then the rest of it is just like so strange just like submitting to this parental authority like at first out of guilt and then just because it's parental authority is is very strange to me that that felt um you know quite lovecraftian somehow Mm -hmm. yeah and maybe also out of you know, a desire for punishment, mm. which is both a desire to be made real, you know, to say that the authority, which in this case is the parents, you know, recognizes me. And even if their recognition is negative, you know, and they tell me that I'm bad because I did something bad, uh, it's still like, you know, the system or the or God or whoever, you know, sees me, that they know I exist, mm. which is which is less terrifying perhaps than being entirely ignored. Right. Maybe that's more than the character in that story would understand, but that's almost how I understand that character. Right. Yeah. That, that could be an interesting, you know, kind of commentary on the idea of original sin. Mm -hmm. I've been watching a lot of video essays kind of critiquing evangelical uh, Christianity. So that's like at the forefront of my mind now, but like, yeah, this idea that like, at least if I'm, you know, unworthy it means there's something to be worthy of yeah uh, and and a meaningful judgment mm-hmm. you know that there's someone who cares what i do right right that's almost the horror of like american psycho right is like that he's doing all these things and like there isn't even any proof that he's doing that, like he can't even be sure that he's real right <laughs> yeah you know, and that's that i think is a deeper fear than just that he's a psycho which you know is, is that almost might be a distinction i would draw between you know like the bad and the truly terrifying Mm. you know that a sort of crime that exists as a crime is certainly bad and is terrifying for the people involved but it's kind of existentially terrifying if if it verges into this more lovecraftian territory which itself is a kind of more religious or cosmic territory of you know do we even appear in the real reality or are we lost in a shadow realm yeah um the the other term that was at the forefront of my mind while reading especially the first story the brothers Squimbop, <laughs> which is just the best name the best character name in indie lit right now so congratulations but um struck me as, as bizarro um and longtime listeners will know i've sort of struggled with the definition of what bizarro is and what counts as bizarro but um that was immediately what I thought of the idea of like Y2K just kind of like turning time inside out and these, these grifters running around uh, telling stories. For sure. Yeah. And I love like this idea of a kind of antic quality or a slapstick quality, Mm, mm -hmm. you know, that, yeah. And that you could call it a bizarro quality that, you know, somehow trying to fold a certain type of humor into the horror. And like to present it as not an antidote to it or or an alternative to it, but it's just a facet of it, that those two things are not the same, but they're part of the same thing, Mm -hmm. you know, so that there's a sense of like menace and fear in those um, Brother Squimbop stories. But there's something about them that's they're also like the slapstick duo, you know, they're like. You know, two two members of the Three Stooges, or yeah, or like yeah, you know, Abbott and Costello, or something. Yeah, so, some sort of like Marx Brothers sort of thing. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, and, and given that it did, that that Y two K event turned the twenty seventies supposedly into the nineteen thirties, I was thinking about that mm-hmm. you know, early days of cinema, sort of vaudeville aesthetic from from the real nineteen thirties. You know? Yeah, uh, and it just it seems like horror and comedy sort of can stem from absurdity, so you know some something that's so um unreal or irreal that you either have to be terrified of it or to find it hilarious yeah exactly right or 
try to maintain a form of denial, mm. which maybe is sort of what most of what we understand to be civilization exists to try to do. And mm-hmm. then somehow the purpose of art, you know, if you want to be lofty about it, is to try to at least find moments of puncturing that denial, you know, or of saying what we kind of all know, but can't say. That's the hope, at least, you know, and maybe someone like Samuel Beckett does that, you know, it has this, there's something both horrifying and hilarious and kind of antic about his style that, you know, yeah. and that obviously would be called absurdist that speaks to me a lot. And, and I think it is maybe relevant to this moment too, in which we feel very small, I think, you know, sort of return to the idea of systems. Like I feel like the individual in 2021 feels more and more like a Beckett character mm-hmm. <laughs> than someone who kind of can never can never like exactly get traction in whatever the the larger truth is. But maybe there's a kind of beauty in admitting that if you can have, if you can see a form of humor in it. Mm-hmm. I also got a sort of Don DeLillo white noise qu- quality mm-hmm. from some of your, your stories too, which at one point on Twitter, I said, did, could you consider Don DeLillo proto bizarro? And only one person responded and they said no, but I kind of stand by that question. <laughs> Maybe it was DeLillo under a pseudonym. Wouldn't that be hilarious? <laughs> yeah, it'd be a DeLillo-esque start. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I think so. I mean, he was a huge influence on me. And I think, yeah, he gets something DeLillo is really great at in sort of getting both this like fear, but also this really deep-seated pleasure out of a kind of paranoia. You know, whether it's like political conspiracies or just some sense that like there's something in the culture, you know, that maybe has to manifest as, you know, an airborne toxic event, but like is some, you know, is something that's already there, that it's not a, it's not like this toxic event blew in out of nowhere. It's that it sort of emerged from the, you know, what was already charged up in the ground. And I think that's something that even in, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, DeLillo already understood was kind of maybe not even where we were going, but like it was already where we were at that point and it's definitely where we are at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in our, in our emails, we were talking about ideas to discuss and I, I like this, um, you're talking about uh, with your your more recent and just the fact that you're working on more Brother Squimbop material mm-hmm. and you mentioned uh, magic, mysticism, circus, horror, etc. Um, it was interesting to me that you threw circus in there, and you do have the the one story that takes place in a circus. Um, I'm I'm kind of curious how that I don't know aesthetic uh, appeals to you, or what you you know how you interact with it. I love circus. Yeah, I actually just finished doing a mime course over Zoom, which was a lot of fun and it was just fantastic. And I had great conversations with with the guy teaching it, who's a you know a lifelong mime. Um, I, I just yeah, something about the environment of the circus. You know, maybe because it's like a kind of manifested dream. You know, it's like some world that literally exists often in what is otherwise just like a boring field on the edge of your town, but then becomes this sort of forbidden place that's like kind of for children, but haunted and freaky in some way, or it's, it's almost like designed as a place for children to go to, to be scared about the world of adults, you know, because you see adults, you know, this maybe goes back to denial. It's like you, and, and certainly in the story, um, circus sickness in this book that it's like, as children, you go to the circus and you feel like it's sort of for you, or you're told that it's for you, but then you see adults there behaving in bizarre ways that feels either as though they're abandoning their nature, but maybe on a deeper level that they're revealing their nature, that this Mm -hmm. is, you know, who our parents and our friends, parents and our teachers and whoever, like this is what they really are when they're not pretending to be civilized. You know, like I think I love uh, like zones of exception, you know, places like the circus or like, you know, maybe a kind of nightclub or a a ship or, you know, places that Mm -hmm. aren't stably located in the sort of normal part of town, but that exist in the town, that they're not like deep in the wilderness. You know what I mean? Like I like the idea that your town on its geographical edge, which is usually where the circus is, would verge into like the edge of consciousness, like the beginning of a dream realm or mm. you know, a Mardi Gras realm or something like that. Right. Well, that, that's sort of, there's that metaphor of, you know, 
things that lurk just at the edge of the campfire. So that's a, that's a much more modern take totally. on that. Yeah. I remember one of my first moments, I can remember this like, to say I can remember it like yesterday makes it sound like too long ago. Like I can literally remember it like a second ago that when I was a child, um, we would go to Italy a lot. And my parents have these old friends from like, they lived in someone's barn in the seventies and they would go back and visit these people. And one year we went to some town and the circus came through and it was, I don't know who it was, but it was what the Italians would call a gypsy circus, which, you know, I guess it was kind of offensive, but it's how they would describe it. And, you know, and I was excited. And so I went to the circus and, you know, I was, must've been four or five. And I remember sitting there and just watching all the things happening and being totally riveted by it. And then a fire swallower and juggler was coming around and was sort of doing, you know, trying to like work up the crowd and coming close to the crowd. And I was like really entranced by it and leaned in like really, really close to it. And my mother like grabbed me and pulled me back. And she's like, what are you doing? Like, don't you know, he can really burn you. And somehow that idea, I think, had never occurred to me. Like the idea that something that was presented as a work of art could really burn you mm. was so exciting to me. It was like so illicit that that you know it wasn't sealed off the way a movie would be. You know, it wasn't even though the circus kind of is pretend. The fact that it was literally real uh, was a kind of eureka moment that just permanently changed the way I not not just the way I looked at circus, but the way I like almost what I hoped art could be like the idea mm. that it could literally burn you was, was like became a kind of life motivation. I'm going to put flash paper in the pages of my books when I send them out now. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. It was just, I don't know. And, and something trying to think like how else to, to explain this love of circus that, you know, I think, you know, related to the brother Scrimbop characters too, who are kind of circus performers in right. their own way. And, and actually, as another connective tissue, the brother Squimbop in some incarnations becomes singular as Professor Squimbop as like a single character mm -hmm. who is the antagonist, I guess, or kind of the main character of my novel Angel House. Mm. So which kind of exists at a later stage of this endless Squimbop journey. But as a singular character there, he like sails this arc called Angel House into basically just like a abandoned shore and wherever this arc lands, wherever the anchor makes purchase, a town grows up almost like mushrooms. It just kind of sprouts out of the silt. And then all the people in the town have memories of having lived there, but they kind of know their fate or they suspect that they're fake. Mm. And actually the story circus sickness began its life as an early part of that novel angel house. Cause my first idea was a traveling circus comes to town but has to make the town that it comes to, mm. you know, and then I eventually split them apart. But I think those ideas remained kind of geographically and, and psychologically connected. That's an interesting, I like that a lot. I, I, I think about the, uh, the Milo lyric, I'm paranoid that I'm an Android with synthetic mm -hmm. memories. And that's, that's a good idea of horror. I, I, I kind of see tangents of that idea. Um, there's that game Soma where mm, yeah. you, you run around and at the end, there's like a 50-50 chance that your consciousness gets sent to the rocket ship or whatever, or just stays down. But there's a copy of you that for that copy, it'll be. So like, who is the me that is me? Um, but specifically with the, the brothers Squimbop, I can't not see them as an allegory for like right-wing grifters. Um, and, and maybe that's just because I'm so like stuck in this news talk radio world right now where like all I see is a million, uh, you know, baby rush Limbaugh's kind of sprouting out of the ground. Trying... Rising, rising from his corpse. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like he was a mushroom. And, you know, he had all these spores, speaking of yeah. mushrooms, and there's sure. just all these people. Um, but as you were talking, I was kind of imagining this progression from circus to tent revival to, um, like, Nigel Farage, America's Comeback Tour, and how it is hitting kind of the same things for the same people. 
Totally. And a tent revival being literally like a, a circus show in, in a... Right. I mean, there's magic tricks and everyone's excited. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 I mean, because I think a lot of what gets manifested and then gains traction as right-wing movements comes from like a legitimacy crisis, right? Or a crisis over you know, origins and which manifests as a crisis over borders or over, you know, who's, who's real, right. And the panic about, you know, it's manifested as trying to keep other people out or tell other people they're not real. But I would imagine it comes from a deeper inner fear among the adherents that they're not real or that their origins are not legitimate enough. Right. So it's always, you know, not just in America, but it's like, you know, Mussolini being like, you know, Italy's going to go back to like, the real Romans, you know, or, or Hitler being like Germany is going to go back to the, you know, Teutonic heroes or the Nordic heroes or something like that, that, you know, praise and plays on this idea that people just actually don't have as deep roots as they think they do. And maybe that's not a bad thing, but people experience it as a bad thing. So if someone can come and tell you that you could find relief from that feeling, if you just supported one thing and attacked some other people, unfortunately, like that's always going to be a a successful pitch yeah the the legitimacy thing strikes me there's a funny example of that in my life is um as i was becoming more socially conscious or whatever um i began to rewatch the show kung fu with my dad because that's the show he watched as a kid and so i got the dvds for him and we were watching them and there's a flashback to david carradine's character at the you know the kung fu monastery in japan or china wherever he's supposed to have come from and he's like hey i don't know who my parents are master kung fu man like is that a bad you know thing like should i go to america to try to figure out and he was like you know a tree without roots cannot grow so that's why he goes to the american west to do kung fu on gunslingers or whatever (laughs) Uh-huh. and that that was the thing that like stuck with me for quite a while and i suppose still does stick with me that like um holding on to something that's not quite there yeah and, and i think the really difficult question is like how do you hold on to something that doesn't tend rightward you know because it's easy to see how the rightward tendency comes from from wanting something to hold on to Mm-hmm. but I don't think the antidote can be therefore you can't hold on to anything because like people can't live that way like you do have something you do have to have something to hold on to which I think is a really deep question yeah. always but maybe re-exposed now is like what is there that people can like actually believe in in a sincere way that isn't secretly fascistic right I find myself going further and further backward in time to find something worth grabbing onto so um I'm I'm mostly Polish and Hungarian and mm-hmm. like modern day Poland and Hungary are not a place that I want to gravitate toward. Um, so it's like, okay, let's go back to like Slavic paganism. And it's like, okay, there's some like cool ideas there. Every single online source is very, you know, I'm on an FBI watch list now because right. there's... What? Like, there's the people who are going and saying, hey, actually, you know, these Christians are just a whole bunch of Middle Easterners who came up to Europe. So let's go back to the religion we were before. And, you know, it's hard to go back further than that because those guys didn't even have writing until the Christians came to introduce writing. And that's why all these movements are so complicated, right? Because what seems like a potentially healthy desire to go back to, to say, the, the ancient religion or the primordial religion of a given place also is going to appeal to that same like fascist contingent. I think a lot of those, as far as I know about, about Poland and Hungary, a lot of those movements are themselves explicitly anti-Christian in some sense, mm-hmm. even though we associate hyper-Christianity with extreme rightism in you know, the contemporary world. Even like, like I was watching this documentary about um, Norwegian black metal mm. and they had an interview with Varg, you know, this sort of famous like supposed cannibal murderer. And it's very hard to tell because the things that, you know, it's like half of what he says is like, you know, I was growing up in Bergen and, and, you know, McDonald's came and, you know, my friends and I didn't want, you know, our like provincial and like authentic culture to be ruined by American commercialization. So we started throwing rocks at McDonald's and I was like, great. And then he's like, and Christianity was, you know, seated by the Jews. So it's like, whoa, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> you know? but, but it just shows that, that 
all these things like meet on spooky axes off the, the typical kind of two-dimensional uh, right-left divide, which, which just makes this moment a lot, you know, actually makes something like weird fiction a good lens to look at it through. There's just something weird going on. You know, there's something going on that might be good or might be bad, but there's another dimension in which it just has this profound strangeness that's hard to chart if you just have two dimensions. Mm-hmm. And that's, I've, I've seen that analysis of HP Lovecraft where like, Hey, you know, all those things he was afraid of, like actually happened, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and he himself is a good example, right? I mean, that a lot of his right. cosmic fear came from just like profound racism. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, he did express like what it feels like to have cosmic fear in a way that might be productive, even if it came from a place that is really horrible, you know? So, I mean, there's no real way to parse it except by just looking at it as extremely complicated. Right. Um, in in keeping with that, it seems like, um, it, it seems like based on your, your conversation on Wake Island Pod and, and reading this book that you, I'm not actually, I'm going to scrap that. I don't want to make an assumption. What What is your relationship with America, America, the American dream, American culture, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, a deep, wary fascination. Mm. You know, it's something that I truly love, you know, and I really, I feel a kind of, maybe not affinity, but but like tenderness for the sense of like inner chaos that someone like the Brothers Grimbop characters have, while also feeling a lot of fear of them, you know, a sense that like, if these guys came to my town, I would be, I would see that as a bad thing. You know what I mean? So that there's some, uh, you you know, it's like everything contains its opposite, you know, that there's something very exciting about the way that America is unformed and kind of unresolved and that everything's up in the air and that everyone's on the make and that, you know, everyone might have an assumed identity or, or might be planning to assume an identity or, you know, and all of that stuff, I think actually can be really exciting. And there is some, you know, the American dream maybe is a, kind of dead as a term, but there is still some like um, productive volatility that, mm. I, that I do think that America should not only give itself credit for, but like embrace more. That like, there is a sense of potential that is not even being fully used. On the other hand, that potential can take like extremely devious and negative uh, manifestations, you know, and that there is this sense that like nobody really trusts each other and that everything. You know, I mean, that there's a legacy of, of extreme violence is, is one thing, but but even in a more banal sense, there's just a sense like everything's kind of a scam or everything is, you know, a story that's being told to paper over either a truth that's hidden or a truth that just genuinely isn't known. Mm. You know, and, that, and that's kind of the Lovecraft thing, too, that it's like he's, you know, his characters are always discovering something in America. Yeah, I mean, it, it, or so cosmic that it either just isn't American anymore and like exists in this like alternate realm, or uh, reveals some like level of the American foundation, which is usually hellish in, in his his understanding, that is there that we kind of don't uh, don't want to acknowledge or, or can't see most of the time, and have maybe built our culture to not see. Mm. Yeah, I. That that was off of my approximation, so I'm I'm glad I I changed directions. Interesting. What what would you have said? Because maybe I'm I'm uh, consider maybe I'm telling my own form of an American story in that regard. I was just going to say that you were more, and I couldn't quite think of the word. Still can't. Um, forgiving to the idea that like America is a legitimate idea um, that can kind of be found out or discovered um whereas for me i i found myself in the past couple of years getting um and as much as i can sort of like interested in native american issues and talking to some native american people and reading native american poetry and stuff like that and just sort of thinking like oh okay actually like no nobody i know belongs here um and then just sort of extrapolating based on that like the american thing is is entirely sort of illegitimate and therefore doesn't even really need to be solved 
Um, but then on the other hand, I, I hit a block because again, I'm not going to Poland. You, you couldn't pay me to go to Poland. So anywhere else I go, I'm just going to be an immigrant anyway, pretty much anywhere else I'd want to go. I'd have to learn another language. So like what do, but, but so far as America is concerned, it's just kind of like I view the idea or the founding principles or the American dream, which again, being embroiled in the news talk radio world, like is a term that still does get bandied around a lot in certain circles. Um, I just kind of see it as like empty set dressing or something like that, I guess. Yeah. But I think you put your finger on the, the heart of, of the issue that we face in the exact moment is that you can have both, a feeling of total illegitimacy, which I share, and a feeling that if you're not going to leave and you find yourself here, what does that actually mean? You know, so it's like that living in that sort of zone in which you like can't put your feet down, and maybe shouldn't put your feet down. You know, I, I don't want to undersell the, mm-hmm. <laughs> how deeply illegitimate it is, but but if you are nevertheless in that situation, then the question, you know, which to me is interesting both as a person and as a writer, is like how do you sort of hover in that way? Or like, how do you keep moving ahead even when you feel that maybe there's nowhere for you to go and nowhere that you should go? Mm-hmm. You know, if you're not going to kill yourself, right? Like sort of what, what other option is there? Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, you start thinking about that and then you stumble onto the antinatalism subreddit and suddenly you're having a real bad time. But um, I, I guess that's where like the idea of like, privilege and duty comes like and i feel like a lot of you know any american who like isn't already a radical leftist has a hard time with that idea of like anti-racism where like it's not enough to just be nice to everybody like just you being born where you're born and living where you live is an act of like perpetual violence against people who like can never have that um you know quelled so like you you have to work against it which again for somebody who grew up catholic and sort of got away from that idea with regard to like god living on earth with it is like extra weird and uncomfortable 100 percent, and i think that means maybe we're entering i've heard people call it a post-secular age but like we're entering Mm -hmm. this weird moment where you know, by and large, we've kind of dispensed with God, except in like a hyper reactionary sense, like the mm-hmm. evangelical world you were talking about. But we also are starting to realize that we can't live in this purely secular sense. So like you said, it's like now we're trapped with God on earth, mm-hmm. you know, which maybe relates to that systems horror idea too. Like that, you know, if you look at it through the lens of racism, you could say like you're uh, immersed in a system that is itself sinister rather than saying, well, I'm nice to people, therefore, you know, it's like that logic doesn't work because the system is what it is, you know, and becoming aware of it is something you can't unsee. Yeah. That ethical relativism is something only for other people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a good starting point to be nice to people, but, but the, the consciousness that there's something deeper than that, that you're enmeshed in just by existing the, the way you said, I think is, is, you know, has to be true and is something that we now I don't know what the answer to it is, but but that we're now becoming conscious of, which must at least be a good step. Mm-hmm. The, the post-secular ideas is something interesting, too. I was thinking about a while back. I can't remember who I was talking to, but it was something about how a couple of years ago, I would have just assumed that most of the people I interact with on Twitter who are writers were atheists. And now I just kind of assume that they're all some sort of mishmash of pantheistic, new age, something or other. Like everybody's reading tarot cards on their phones and you know picking up gnostic works at the used bookstore which is fascinating for sure i mean i think we're we're at the end of an experiment of living without an acknowledged ideology you know so people claiming that they don't believe in anything this kind of relates to horror too like begin to just enchant everything around them mm you know, to, I mean, you see it all the time throughout COVID of like, no matter what side people end up on, it has a religious quality rather than a practical quality. 
you know what I mean? Like no one's ever saying this is just what makes sense. They're saying this is what I deeply believe in some transcendental way, mm-hmm. you know, and that to me would show that there's a kind of spiritual void that isn't being filled by something else. But then the question becomes, what can you fill it with? I mean, that right. you know, for me, it's it's some sort of mystical relation to art, but I guess that doesn't really scale. I mean, it's hard to, you, you can't like convince other people of that. That's something people have to come into on their own. Right. Yeah. There's, I, I I also hold some sort of like mindful relationship to books and things like that. But my God, man, the, the, the amount of times I've heard cult thrown around in the last year from the left and the right at each other is amazing to me that like, you know, the people who don't wear masks are in a death cult. The people who wear masks alone in their cars are part of the mask cult. It's, um, it's bewildering and amazing that that's and a wild. thing. And even the endless uh, yard signs of we believe in science, even just that phrase, mm-hmm. what it means to believe rather than we study science or we recognize science or we follow science. I mean, the word believe also has this quality of like it's right above and beyond whatever research it's doing. Whereas if you ask any scientist, they'll explain what the method is and like, here's what we know and what we don't know. And here's the test we're doing. And, you know, mm-hmm. but it's not a structure of belief in the same way. Right. You know, I mean, I think one thing I was thinking about with the idea of, cults you know especially because not only are like both political parties if there are are even two at this point but like large segments of political parties called cults by each other but also there's like a huge proliferation of media about actual cults it seems like mm-hmm. you know i mean like i watched all the, the nexium stuff and oh yeah there's this podcast about the orgasm cult in in california and all, you know which are all the same and it kind of occurred to me that I don't know if this is just always true about cults or if it's something about the way that they're presented right now, but that actually the way that those stories are always told is like a reassurance about capitalism because the story is always Mm -hmm. that, you know, people are dissatisfied by living in the cities or they feel alone or that, you know, they don't have family or they don't know what to believe in or, you know, all all of which are legitimate desires. Right. And then it's like, they join this thing that they thought was going to, enlighten them or would show them a new way to be and then it did for a while right and then it started to prey on them and then it turned out the leader who claimed to have found a way out of capitalism actually just wanted money and sex right oh every time that's the story those stories are sort of reassuring i guess because they're telling you like you shouldn't try to escape the system that's making you miserable because if you do something worse will happen to you and the person leading it ultimately won't have escaped the system themselves, but will only want to like benefit from it in this like classic scam style, which I guess the brother Squimbop characters are sort of like that. Too. I'm actually writing a cult of the one true Squimbop story, which is sort of about these guys who don't have a stable origin and don't know who they are, or why they're doing what they're doing, joining a cult, which is of course run by one of them, you know, mm. it's a cult of endless squimbops that will tell them how to find the one true one, even though all of the adherents are already the same person. Mm. So it's a kind of like horror of solipsism cult. Uh, you know, it like will provide everybody with an origin story that is played out as this kind of like circus act that's like obviously fake. But the question then is like, do you accept this as your origin story and sort of graduate from the cult with the, uh, having submitted to the idea that you're willing to believe something about yourself that you know isn't true, or do you just live on in this like unsolvable contingency where you just don't know it's true and you don't know what's right, which I think is probably more ethical, but it's much more difficult Mm -hmm. and maybe impossible. Yeah. Uh, I guess all roads lead back to Zen for me too, where it's just like, it's fine. Just, it's fine. Just sit with it. It's fine. A hundred percent. Yeah. And if you can find a way to do that, then you've kind of, yeah, I was about to say like you've won, but even that is like a very non-Zen idea. But like if you find right. a way to do that, you've found a way to do that. <laughs> maybe that's all you could say. Right. But maybe that's all. Maybe that's all you need to say. Um, that reminds me. I, I feel like as we figure things out, things continually get more twisted. There was the cult in Colorado whose leader just died, and she was found like mummified. Mm-hmm. And in watching um, analysis analyses of of that it seems like the cult leader the woman was almost certainly duped into it by another guy so like not only 
are you getting people to believe that this woman is the daughter of Donald Trump, who is Jesus also? Um, but you first convinced her to do it so you can just stay way back out of the picture and siphon whatever money you need to get out without doing any of the work. And that's a total weird fiction thing too, right? That the, that we're like, we're always looking in the wrong place. Like whatever avatar we think is the source is always just the, the prophet or just the avatar, you know? I mean, I think it's, you know, when you, when you said that about science or, or about like the way that knowledge is leading us toward greater complexity rather than greater clarity, that I think is part of why we're entering this post-secular age. Because like you have the sense that, I heard a neuroscientist who was saying this, that he was like, you know, in the broadly defined like pre-modern world, you know, people believed in a soul, right? And we thought, you know, there's something that makes us who we are that, you know, isn't mortal and isn't even us exactly and is somehow celestial, right? And then he's like in the early days of neuroscience, maybe in the 19th century and into a lot of the 20th century, we veered hard in the other direction, right? And said, it's only chemicals, it's only matter, it's all knowable, you know, everything turns off when you die. And like, we're just gonna get closer and closer to knowing what it is. But he's like, now, as we go deeper into the 21st century and have ever more sophisticated means of studying it, maybe you can say that it's matter but you can't say it's just matter because the idea of even what matter is, is way more complicated than we imagined or what these chemicals are, or what actually amounts to consciousness. You know, so it's not the reason why it's a post secular age and not a new religious age is that you don't have to return to where you were, but you also can't stay in that, you know, enlightenment age that like, we're going to solve everything. Right. So I, I do feel like we're, you know, so it's like if the, you know, age of the soul or the kind of like, dominant religious age is like level one then the enlightenment age the secular age is level two now we're entering something like a level three which is kind of you know has some qualities similar to level one but is also way beyond it like we're you know we're not going back but we're entering a new time of deeper mystification and complexity rather than uh getting any closer to knowing everything the way we once imagined we would right there's um uh, a theologian or was I guess he died recently James Fowler who has the uh, six stages of religious development which are very similar to what you're describing hmm. um, where um, the final stage six the sixth stage is universalizing faith or what some might call it enlightenment so like we're no longer are any of the labels necessary but um, there's Stage zero is the primal or undifferentiated. Stage one is intuitive or projective. Um, stage two is mythic, literal, and then synthetic, conventional, and then individuative, reflective, conjunctive, and then universalizing. And it, it does kind of go that way of like, um, you know, first I believe one thing, and then there's like, I don't actually believe anything, and then there's like a syncretic sort of stage where um you know the more you know the more you sort of go from a big box to no box to a bunch of little boxes to just being the box i guess yeah and that and that seems like it maps on to your own development right of starting with catholicism then moving into atheism and now moving into some more universalized spirituality right yeah he he even has like ages so like mm -hmm. He says by age 45 plus, people are generally in the universalizing thing, which I think was actually maybe a little uh, um, charitable, <laughs> considering he was also American. He should have maybe figured out that that wasn't necessarily the case, but maybe I'm too hard on, on my fellow Americans. Well, it's, an, I mean, it's, you know, you could talk about America or about, you know, when you mentioned um Poland and, and Hungary. I mean, it's an interesting moment because it's like there's a kind of tension between, I suppose, three camps, right? There's this sort of mainstream, like, let's hold on to secularism and, and rationality. There's this hard right counter movement of like, let's return to actual Christianity, you know, as like a dominant you know, power structure. And then there's some emergent other thing, which I guess you could say is on the left or is sort of hovering above the spectrum. That's like neither of those options work. Mm hmm. And, and those two options cause each other, right? The more that you tell people that you can't believe in anything or you can believe in like hardcore Christianity, if those are the two choices, people will verge into the hardcore. Whereas if there's a third choice of like, you can believe in something that can also be 
you know, tolerant and pluralistic and forward looking that, you know, my sense of optimism is that maybe that can diffuse some of this if there's a way for, for that to become, you know, a more dominant uh, narrative in the world, which maybe it is already. I don't know. But I mean, that gives me some sense of hope that that it's not a binary of either you believe in nothing or you believe in like the most repressive system. I don't think people should have to choose between those two options. Right. We're, we're on the same page there. Uh, yeah, and I, th and I think unsurprisingly, like I do feel like that there's a uh, generational movement or or just phenomenon afoot that like we are both examples of something that's in the air that you know, and like you said about writers on Twitter, that the assumption that people would be atheists, for example, is less and less easy to assume means that there's some phenomenon happening that we are examples of. Mm -hmm. You know, and it occurred to me also. I was thinking about. Uh, you know, this idea of like 30 year cycles, because like you have the time when people are born in one era and then about 30 or 30 plus years later, it's like they're sort of entering the culture and entering, mm -hmm. you know, they're kind of defining the culture. And I was thinking that, you know, if you view the last 30 year cycle, when, you know, I was born, right, I was born in the mid 80s. I imagine a lot of writers around, you know, who, who we're kind of talking about now come from about that time, say the late 70s to the 90s. Uh, you know, and that was at least in America, this time of optimism, right? It was like the Berlin Wall had fallen, the internet was ascending. It was this time of, you know, more and more knowledge and just kind of like reasonableness was somehow going to get us to a better place, uh, which I feel like I absorbed as a child. At the same time, the pop culture of that era made by people who were 30 years older, right? Born in the 60s was like extraordinarily nihilistic, right? That was like the Gen X Mm -hmm. aesthetic of like you know nirvana brady snellis tarantino you know winona Ryder, like those types of uh slacker that that kind of stuff right uh and on the one hand there's some like contradictions right that like as a kid i was raised with like you know things will only get better and better whereas in pop culture it was like life is reservoir dogs or whatever right mm -hmm. but i think those two things are actually um two sides of the same coin because they're both presupposing a world that only involves the individual so whether you're, you know, a kid being told you can follow your dreams and do be whatever you want, or, you know, Brady Snell is writing American Psycho, both of those things ignore the idea of a larger system, right? They're both just about who are you as an individual, and that can be positive or negative. But the thing that I think we're entering now, which is part of why I feel we're um, re-enchanting the world in a sense, is that we just no longer feel that way. Like we feel that there are things that are acting on us that are spooky yeah, and, and, are, and actually have nothing to do with us, but that we're, that we are complicit in just like you said, by existing. Right. Yeah. The, the internet, you know, on the one hand, it's impossible to, you know, not be part of a group. There's so many fandoms, communities, like everything's a community these days, you know, every single YouTube person who has enough followers to start a patreon reliably like has a community um and then you know the rise of populism on the left and the right uh and all of that stuff yeah and that may have to do with internet history also in that you know up until maybe i don't know 2010 or so we had this like sense that it was the age of information in which mm. like more and more and more information was perceived as a good thing. Like, you know, we still knew that no person could absorb it all, but I think we felt that it was going to make us more grounded as individuals to have access to increasingly more information. And then at some point, I think around 2010, when social media became like the dominant, like the internet just became social media basically, mm -hmm. rather than, you know, an infinite variety of separate websites we kind of segued from this age of information to an age of influence, which actually had mm. the opposite trajectory that it was like, instead of wanting more and more and more as an individual, we now want like someone, you know, an influencer to curate it for us, which goes to this idea of um, wanting to be in like a values community, mm -hmm. which is always going to be antagonistic to the other community, no, no matter what it is. And populism works that way, right? It's like, I, I'm not going to like consider the nuances of an ideology, I'm going to just like follow this guy because he's my guy, no matter who he is. Right? Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, that that sort of reminds me of, of the intro to Drifters, 
that uh, Matthew Spellberg wrote. Yeah. Where he, he's talking about like the three worlds um, of your writing. And uh, the first one just kind of reminded me of growing up in a suburb of Grand Rapids where like it's very much a kids on bikes sort of thing. Um, you know, I remember walking down to the family video and, and getting videos or getting video games and then sitting in a basement until we got too cold to go outside and, you know, go ransack a, a elementary school playground after hours or something until we got too hot and then go back down to the basement. Um, and that idea of like the, t- the mid-sized town where there's people who I know live there, but do not know. Um, but you know, there's few enough people that I can recognize people, but too many people for me to know everybody. Um, that idea sort of struck me as, as relating very much to my own sort of experience. Certainly. I I mean, I think it, you know, I think a lot of, I think a lot about towns And, and in a way I feel like my mind when I think about fiction, I think of my mind as a town. You know, I try to literally picture like where are different events happening and where, this goes back to what we were saying about circuses, but like where are these fringes? Like where's the cultural and geographical edge of this town? You know, so the idea of a kind of psychogeography of, of like thinking about thoughts in a, like literally trying to map them and sometimes mapping them onto familiar places like my own hometown and sometimes either trying to map them or just letting them be mapped onto the most bizarre places that, that I can come up with, you know, the way a dream would kind of recombine the familiar with like the totally alien to me is always like how the schema of fiction works when I think about it, Mm. you know, and lately, maybe especially with, with Drifter coming out, I've been thinking about it within books and between books, you know, that I have this idea of trying to make like a linked universe. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, you know, and I hope the books can stand alone, but that also they speak to each other thematically and kind of geographically, you know, that the same characters will appear in different ones and that there's a kind of semi-coherent trip you could imagine about how they got from one to the other. You know what I mean? And that it, yeah, it's all based on my feeling about my own hometown growing up and kind of what, like, I like what you said about that buffer layer of people who you know you know but you don't know mm-hmm. you know in, in angel house which is probably my most like town book in a way those people are called the sub weird because they're not mm-hmm. like the actual weirdos who you know because they're specifically weird <laughs> but they're also not people who you know like your friends and family so they're this like buffer layer of people who you almost, like i remember as a kid having this kind of paranoia that even those people like weren't the same day to day that there were like extras being swapped mm-hmm. in and out who always felt the same, but only because you knew them in the same half knowing way, you know, that they weren't actually like stable people and maybe not even, you know, almost like the idea of imagining your town as a set where like, if you pushed on the buildings, they would just topple it. Like those people felt that way too, that they were kind of there, but, but like you could never know them, you know, that it wasn't just that you happened not to know them, but that they were, deployed as the people you were supposed to never know Mm -hmm. yeah i i had a weird sort of like glitch in the matrix moment my goodness um where like i was hanging out at a park one time and this girl walked up to me and was talking to me and then like weeks later i saw her at school and walked up to her and was like oh hey you're the you're the girl from the park and she's like i've never seen you before in my life i have no idea who you are and i'm i to this day i'm i'm convinced it's the same girl and I don't know. Stuff like that happens. It, yeah. And sometimes I have the feeling too of like, I'll see people on the street who I, I'm pretty sure I don't know, but like remind me of someone. Mm, mm-hmm. And I feel that they look at me in the same way. Mm-hmm. Like almost that we each remind each other of someone in a way that seems like a total coincidence, but in the moment feels, feels not. Like I like this kind of narrative paranoia of like, imagining that things are staged or imagining that there's some not even a plot necessarily but just that there's some scheme you know i guess like a simulation or something that you're you've been deployed into but that you don't know the rules of it but that there are rules you know and that in a way we tell ourselves that the world is perhaps bigger than it is Mm -hmm. you know and that in fact like there aren't 
I mean, I literally believe that there are as many people as there are, as they say they are, but like that in some sense in your lived experience, like the same people pop up way more often than seems possible. Yeah. Even if you travel a lot. I mean, even if you don't live in like a tiny, tiny place, you know? Yeah. It's a strange sort of like our brain processing randomness in a, in a certain way to, to just force there to be patterns because the brain <laughs> needs patterns. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I think the brain is kind of like, if you want me to work, like, here's how I work. Mm -hmm. so either you can turn me off or try to break me if you want, or you have to accept this. Right. I mean, that's how you get like night terrors, right? Is that just like, I'm going to find a face. There's got to be a face somewhere. So there's going to be a face. Yeah. Right. And I think that that's another distinction that's really interesting within horror is like concrete horror versus abstract horror, mm. you know? And like, is it scarier to imagine you know, Michael Myers coming after you with a chainsaw or to imagine that there's just some presence in the world that will never take a shape and might not even mean you any harm, like isn't even going to hurt you. But the fact that you can tell that it's there, but not tell what it wants might be even scarier. Right. Yeah. It follows does that really well, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And maybe actually it follows as a good, I don't want to overuse this idea, but it's a good like systems horror movie because mm. it's like the it is never never appears right it's like like the movie really could be like they follow right but the yeah. thing that follows we never see it we just see examples of it right i mean even to the point at the end where they're like physically fighting it and electrocute it in a pool mm -hmm. like i mean if you want to think about like the it as racism like we can do that right we can we can vote out whatever president we want to vote out and we can arrest people who break the law but like you know it's still going to get out of the pool yeah, because it's like an emergent principle, right? It's like you can keep attacking the avatars of something, but it, I mean, the virus works the same way, right? It's like something that mm -hmm. exists that is only palpable in individuals, but isn't an individual. Mm -hmm. Right. I, I mean, that, you know, and maybe that, like, I like that idea that when you have a night terror, uh, it's somehow comforting to actually imagine that it's a demon with a face and a personality rather than an inexplicable force maybe relates to like this religious idea of, you know, why would, you know, people imagine a punishing God? Like, why would it be comforting to imagine a God mm -hmm. who just wants to hate, who just wants to like strike you down? But I think that's exactly why, because it's like to imagine that there's some like rational force behind the things that happen to you in life, even if you view that force as sinister is actually still reassuring. Yeah. So, like, one of the, most interesting courses I ever took was this course on the book of Job. Mm. And basically that was the way that, that it was discussed that they were like, you know, these horrible things happened to Job. Right. And he says, you know, I did everything right. And I pray, prayed at the right time. And I did the sacrifice and I didn't do the sacrifice on the wrong day and all this stuff. And I had my family and I was very upstanding. You know, why are my crops dying? Am I getting these horrible boils and all these plagues? Um, and all of his friends come and they can only see it according to the doctrine, right? They're like, well, maybe you didn't light the right candle and maybe you said the prayer three times and not four times or, you know, and all this stuff. And he's just like, no, I know that I did it right. Like I know the, the book and the rules better than you. And like, I'm sure I did it right. And so his friends can't help him. And then eventually, you know, he goes through all the spheres and all the stuff and, and he like gets an audience with God. You know, it's almost like a Kafka story where he's like waiting in the room to go in and finally gets to go in. And, uh, you know, he expresses the whole thing and he says, I did everything right. And he's like, look, didn't we have a deal? Like, I thought, you know, you gave me the rules and if I followed them, you would take care of me. And at least, you know, I guess the original was in Greek, I think. And the professor like read out the Greek of God's response. And his translation was, God says to Job, not only will I not answer your question, but I won't even admit that it is a question. You know, and I just love that. He's like, you know, have faith if you want to have faith, but like, it's never good. Like we have no deal. <laughs> but in a way that can be a deeper form of faith if you can, you know, if you can accept that. And maybe literature is like that. Like no one can get, you know, there's no, uh, no promise of any reward when you embark on a project. But if you can embark on it anyway, then it's, you know, that returns to that Zen idea of like, there's something intrinsically meaningful about it. So, all right. So I was thinking I would read, since we've talked about um, Brother Squimbop so much, uh, I would read just the first, like, maybe a couple pages of the first story called The Brother Squimbop. 
um, which is both the first of the series of stories about these characters and the first story in the book, in Drifter. The brothers Squimbop, Jim and Joe, plied their trade in the dusty American interior of the 2070s, which, following the logic that Y2K was the zero hour and it was all linear reversion from there, mapped almost perfectly onto the 1930s. They rambled through the Dust Bowl in a beat-up Chevy, taking semester-long postings at forgotten, often nameless community colleges, teaching the students, such as they were, about what the nation used to be. Addle-brained giants used to walk this land, they would say, picking up cities and putting them down thousands of miles to the west. One's confusion slowed their progress to a standstill. Or overnight, all land and water in this nation traded places, such that America was once nothing but a constellation of small islands, the largest of which eventually became the Great Lakes. The students would yawn and stare at their crackling yellow notepads, dragging their pens along the lines and then off the edges of the paper and onto their desks. Others would pull cold hocks of meat from paper bags and hold them in the air, sometimes remembering to gnaw them, other times not. It was a dying art, that of walking into cavernous lecture halls and holding forth with the presumption of authority despite the water damage, despite the mildew, despite the boxes of smudged documents floating in puddles. But the brothers Squimbop were determined to keep it alive as long as they could. They sensed that its death would coincide with their own. So they took turns standing behind the podium in Tulsa, Aberdeen, and Eau Claire, careful never to be seen together so as to maintain the illusion of being one slightly inconsistent man, though no one ever pointed this inconsistency out. Still, the idea that someone might was the source of no small degree of hilarity. Modest pleasures, the brother Squimbop had determined long ago, were the only pleasures within mortal reach. The confusion caused by their alternation, even if only theoretical, was a good example of this. We are, in this sense, a sort of comedy duo, they like to tell themselves, a pair of entertainers plying our trade in the vast interior of a nation that long ago lost any claim to psychic or even geographical coherence. A nation that is now nothing but a tattered platform upon which anyone passing through can mount whatever roadshow accords with his the brothers knew no women well enough to joke about, sense of humor, and with luck extract a few nickels before shuffling on. They might go for whiskey and pork at a Beale Street barbecue joint on their way out of Memphis, if they'd already been fired from whatever institution they'd been teaching at, and ruminate on the nature of their journey, forcing their minds away from any speculation as to its unremembered beginning and unimaginable end. Hovering as they were obliged to in the temporal and spatial middle of all things, they ribbed one another constantly and mercilessly, each claiming as often as possible and in the lewdest possible terms to be the other's father. The things they claimed to have done with their ostensibly mutual mother, whom neither had ever met nor even ever heard from, made each brother blush so heavily that it was nearly impossible to complete the boast without devolving into gusts of nervous laughter, like boys watching pigs rut on a farm had they been farm boys, which perhaps they had been, since no images from before the age of 40 existed in either of their minds. Aside from the one-upmanship inherent in these tales of the circumstances surrounding the other's conception, their greatest game involved devising new and increasingly salacious means of getting themselves fired from their already tenuous teaching posts. Each delighted in returning to the Ramada Inn or the Econo Lodge where the other was sprawled on the bedspread with the blackout curtains drawn at three in the afternoon, and announcing they've run us off campus again. This time I suggested that the moon was in fact the locus of all legitimate human activity. Well, the earth was a sort of penal colony for those too dim-witted or depraved to take part in a larger social project. And I had a whole lecture prepared on this premise. The brothers always prepared their lectures separately to ensure maximal disjunct as they traded off teaching duties. But then I found myself laughing so hard I was, in short order, choking on great spicy wads of phlegm, and I had the impression that the moon itself had heard my blasphemous claim and was punishing me for it in the manner of actual lunatics. And anyway, I was... But by this point in the story, the other Squimbop brother would already be packing his bags, stealing a few Douay Egbert's coffee packets if they were in a motel that provided them, and preparing to peel out of the parking lot in their 27 Chevy tearing onto the abandoned highway like a couple of bank robbers, Dillinger 1 and Dillinger 2, burning rubber in high dudgeon as they put another failed venture behind them, me and the devil blues wailing over the transistor radio. Mm -hmm.